Good morning. This morning we finish up our series in the book of Jonah. I'll be reading from Jonah chapter 4 if you have a Bible and would like to follow along. This is the word of the Lord. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? and also much cattle. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we we are so thankful for the richness and the beauty of your word. Thank you for the the words of Jesus preserved for us in that um, parable of the prodigal son and of the elder brother. Thank you also for the timeless testimony of Jonah. We know that Just as you questioned him, in some sense, you are questioning us now by your spirit. You're questioning us. And so thank you for challenging our hearts, even if they are at times hard. Lord, we confess to you that by nature, it's easy for us to become Pharisees, older brothers who glory in your favor for us, but who are quick to judge those who we feel are undeserving of your grace. So we pray that you would gently humble us. Help us to glory in a God who's gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and who relents from bringing disaster. Humble us at the cross of Jesus. This we pray to the glory of his name. Amen. Please be seated. The Lord Jesus said, I will build my church. Satan is bound, the nations are being discipled, Christianity is expanding. I think Americans especially probably need to hear this because it sure feels like Christianity in our country is shrinking, right? feels like we're in decline, and that's probably true. Just 50 years ago, in 1973, 90% of the American population identified as Christian. Now, we know that it wasn't 90% Christian, but 
nonetheless. That's a lot of people identifying as Christian. Just 50 years later, it's down to 64%. Just in the last decade, it's dropped 10 points. 2.5 billion people identify as Christians worldwide. Half of that number are Roman Catholics, but evangelicals are growing as a population. Globally, Christianity is growing. It is, though not at an incredible rate. It's like 1.2% per year, but that is outpacing the population growth overall. The real shift, though, in Christianity this century is from what missiologists call the global north to the global south. In 2000, in the global north, and the global north is really just Europe and North America, but in the global north, in 2000, there were 814 million people identifying as Christians. Now, a few years, a couple decades later, it's 838 million, so pretty stagnant. In the global south, however, and the global south is really just Asia, it's considered just Asia and Africa, we've gone from 660 million Christians to 1.1 billion Christians in the global south. Christian population there has nearly doubled in 20 years. Where's Christianity growing most rapidly? Anybody want to venture a guess? China. China, that's right. China and Iran and sub-Saharan Africa. China, think about that. Just a decade ago, 10 years ago, there were, it was considered 20 million Christians. Now it's more like 40 to 60 million. Now, we know that that's not a crazy estimate because even the Chinese Communist Party admits that there's 38 million Christians in China. Most of those are evangelicals. You know, if the population, if the Christian population in China keeps doubling every 10 years, well, wow. In Iran, in 1979, so what, about 45 years ago, there were approximately 500 Christians across the whole nation. Now, there are 500,000 Christians in that nation. Iran represents the fastest growing Christian population in the world. You think about that. That's a Muslim state. You know what the, the name for Iran is? The Islamic Republic of Iran. How ironic. Sub-Saharan Africa. In 1900, so about 125 years ago, there were less than 10 million Christians living in all of the continent. Now there are nearly 500 million African Christians, most of whom live in sub-Saharan Africa. 500 million. It, in, in another 25 years' time, it's estimated that four out of every 10 Christians will hail from sub-Saharan Africa. South America. We'll add that to the list. We know that that's had a somewhat Christian heritage, right, being heavily nominally Catholic, but uh, uh, hordes of people. There's been a monumental shift from Catholicism to evangelical and a Pentecostal movement. Of course, in the Western Hemisphere, just like in Africa, they have significantly lower literacy rates, right, than we do here in North America. Praise God, hallelujah, for what he is doing in the world. However, what are the implications for us regarding how Christianity is growing in the world today? I mean, I mentioned China and Iran. Consider that. Christianity is growing 
in cultures that hate America, in cultures that maybe threaten our democracy or our well-being. And Christianity is growing in poor and more ignorant cultures, right? Sub-Saharan Africa, South America, these are mostly poor nations. The average Christian in the world today is African or Asian, has a low level of literacy, is economically poor, and is charismatic. Are you any of those things? <laughs> How's that make you feel? Are you, are you excited about what God's doing? Are you a little nervous about that? Does it make you a little frightful or maybe even resentful? Are you tempted to sulk at what God is doing? You know, wouldn't you much rather God bring about a revival in your own country? This could be really upsetting to us. Do we really want an anti-American and an anti-intellectual Christianity as the future? Jonah clearly was not excited about what God was doing. In fact, he was downright angry. Twice he said he was angry enough to die. And of course, twice God challenged his anger with the question, do you do well to be angry, Jonah? Those questions, do you do well and should I not pity? Those are open-ended questions, questions that aren't answered. And they're questions, therefore, that call for introspection and self-examination. They were posed to Jonah, but of course, they call for self-examination among us. We're called to consider how we feel about God's work. And I don't think that we should disassociate ourselves with Jonah or make a parody of him. Honestly, I think that we can relate a little bit to his sulking. Now, sure, maybe we're not angry enough to die, the way he put it. But if we examine ourselves this morning in light of Jonah, we may discover that we want to protect our culture and maybe even also our comforts at the expense of what God is doing. You know, before we dive in, let me just take a few moments to recap how we got here, how, how we got to the point that Jonah is now sulking at the end of the book. Jonah was called to Nineveh, we know that, but he hated the Ninevites. He hated them because, first of all, they were Israel's enemies. They were an evil culture. They were truly undeserving of God's mercy, cruel people. And so Jonah hated the Assyrian people and their culture. He didn't want to see them repent, so he ran away, ran the other way. Only God wouldn't let him go because God had designs for his kind of golden touch prophet, if you will, right? Everything that Jonah, everyone Jonah spoke to repented. Reluctantly, Jonah had confessed the name of Yahweh to the sailors on that ship, and God granted them repentance. And as much as he tried to do nothing more than just announce a message of impending doom upon the Ninevites, they also repented. So he didn't want to go to Nineveh because they were undeserving. But, but then also remember that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he had a very comfortable calling. He enjoyed announcing prosperity to his own people, but not others. You see, Jonah prized, in a word, Jonah prized his culture and Jonah prized his comforts. And those are really the two things I want us to see from this, from this passage. The prizing of culture and the prizing of comforts. Jonah, first of all, sulked because he prized his own cultural preservation over the salvation of other countries. Look back at the beginning of verse 2 with me. 
Jonah complains, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? From the Hebrew, that can be literally translated. Was it not my word when I was in my country? Now consider the audacity of that statement. Notice how Jonah pits his word against God's word. Jonah's supposed to be a, a prophet. He's supposed to be a messenger who focuses on announcing God's words. But here he's complaining that the Lord won't take heed of his word. Was it not my word, Lord? I told you. Lord, my word, my plan, that's what, that's what is better. That's what matters here. Then, too, he also mentions my country. And here, Jonah basically reveals that he's a nationalist who wants God's favor for his country. Saw a hint of that earlier in the book. His words here are in line with what, the way he, he proudly presented himself to the sailors. He had said what? I'm a, I'm a Hebrew, right? He may have wanted to obscure his God, but he doesn't hide his ethnic identity. That's very important to him. It's my country. I think that should strike us. After all, whose possession was Israel? Repeatedly, in the book of Deuteronomy, doesn't the Lord say that Israel is his treasured possession? He's chosen them out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, but he says his treasured possession has been chosen to bless the nations. See, God has a very big vision for the world. We know this from Psalm 2, right, where Yahweh says to his son, Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. The nations are truly Christ's inheritance, which is why, I'll say it one more time, make Israel great again is a very poor substitute for the Pentecostal plan of God, isn't it? I said that a couple of times and, you know, maybe it's a little trite, but you know I'm poking at that a little bit, aren't I? I know that Christian nationalism is a sore subject. Tread lightly, pastor, right? Look, the Lord doesn't, I want to be clear, the Lord does not condemn our patriotism. He doesn't. We all have a national identity. We don't have to hide that. And I think it's a fine thing to have a love for and a concern over your country. We don't have to apologize for loving people with whom we share blood and soil. Elijah loved his people. Elijah loved his people. And it's, it's a good thing also to grieve over your people. In 1 Kings 19, we see Elijah expressing some of the same sentiments as Jonah did. When Israel was unresponsive to him, to his message, he said to the Lord, enough, Lord, take away my life. I'm ready to die. Imagine there was a little anger mixed in that sorrow. Elijah said, I, I've, been, I've been zealous for you. I've been jealous for you, Lord, and I'm the only one left. Now, the Lord called him out on being a little bit dramatic, didn't he? He said, no, there's 7,000 who I've reserved that haven't bent the kneel to Baal. But Elijah was sulking. But you know, Elijah's sulking was really better than Jonah's sulking. See, Elijah was complaining that his people weren't repenting. And Jonah's sulking that a people not his own did repent. You see, it brought no joy to Jonah that Nineveh repented because they weren't his people. 
At least he didn't see it that way, right? He didn't see that he was really being made one with them. But what he needs to see, what we need to see, is that anyone who repents and turns to the true God is his brother, is our brother. I realize that it's not easy to consider foreigners family. Elijah and Jonah both had to endure watching their nations decline and their people apostatize. But unlike Elijah, Jonah at least had the privilege of seeing another nation heed the call to repentance. But he just didn't value that. He had no enjoyment in that. That's because he only cared about his people and the preservation of his culture. You know, the the temptation of prizing our ethnicity and our culture over the salvation of other countries, I think is still a very real one for us today. But we should resist it. That's because ultimately, as Christians, we're not called to identify ourselves primarily by our nationality. Think about it this way. You, you have more in common with a, 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 a Christian in China who's beholden to the Chinese Communist Party than you do with a freedom-loving, conservative American who do, does not identify as a Christian. You have more in common with an illiterate Christian who hails from the slums of Brazil than you do with an erudite talk show host who is religiously Jewish. That's a difficult truth for us to swallow sometimes. I know. I mean, I know this personally. Um, Last year, last year I I, I had the opportunity to represent the college I was working for, Providence Christian College, at a function called Ask a Jew, Ask a Gentile. Um, It's basically a forum that facilitates a conversation between talk show personality Dennis Prager. He's been holding the event for years. Dennis Prager and a a pastor, a local pastor. In this case, it was Pastor Jack Hibbs of Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills. I think in the past, guys like Alistair Begg have participated in in it. So it's it's a good event. I'm sure, I'm certain that most of the people that came to the event were Christians, not Jews, right? And the draw, of course, was Dennis Prager. We had paid to uh, table at the event, and that gave me the opportunity to go in ahead of time and enjoy some hors d'oeuvres with the so-called celebrities. And, of course, I wanted to get my picture taken with Dennis Prager, right? And there's a big crowd waiting to get their picture taken with Dennis Prager, not many people mingling around um, Pastor Jack Hibbs. And, of course, once I got that picture taken, I showed it off to my wife and my family and my friends. Look, I got my picture taken with Dennis Prager, right? Look, I don't apologize for liking the guy. I do like the guy. I have an affinity and affection for him because I think he just kind of oozes common sense on the radio. And I also think he's one of the better guys. He's warm. He uses humor. Genuinely not trying to belittle people all the time when he's trying to bring them over to a reasonable side, right? He's trying to see them so-called convert. But he's not a Christian, is he? Religiously speaking, he's a Jew. So I should probably challenge my thinking on how much I have in common with him. In fact, once the event got going, I was really proud of what Pastor Jack Hibbs was saying. (laughs) Wished I had gone up and shaken his hand. In fact, if Prager is promoting any gospel other than the gospel of Christ Jesus, well, he's not my brother, is he? 
You know, this touches upon a nuance that I think I should address. We know it's not really about ethnicity, is it? It's about culture. See, I, don't, I, I heard a sermon earlier this week that was basically suggesting that Jonah was just a, a racist, right? And I don't think Jonah was just a plain old racist. In fact, to be honest, for the most part, I think there are very few people in the world today that just hate other people based on the pigmentation of their skin. I don't think that's the way it works for the most part. Usually it's a lot more nuanced than that. We distrust foreigners who are a threat to our culture and our way of life, right? But maybe we forget, maybe we easily forget what we once were apart from Christ. Jonah seems to forget that his nation was insignificant before God called them as his treasured possession. You know, the Lord said, it's not because you were, this is again back in Deuteronomy, it's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. You were the fewest of all peoples. It wasn't because they were culturally superior either. And it wasn't Israel's faithfulness, obviously, that kept them in God's good grace. The Lord was constantly calling his people out of rebellion and waywardness. You know, look at, look at verse 2 again. Jonah complains, I, I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. How do you know that? I mean, I, I know that this is the way that God reveals himself, so maybe Jonah's just naming who God is, right? This way that God revealed himself at Sinai to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and that's a off-repeated off moniker, right, that Yahweh uses for himself throughout Scripture. But what did Jonah mean when he said, I knew that? Isn't it because Jonah had personally experienced God's mercy and grace? He's forgotten so quickly. Remember, he had just, he just had his life redeemed from the pit. Because of his sin, God had taken him down to the, the, the depths of Sheol, the gates of Sheol. He says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet, because of your mercy and grace, Lord, you, you brought up my life from the pit. See, in chapter 2, Jonah's praising God for his grace and salvation. How wonderful, Lord, that you're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You relent from bringing calamity. I glory in your, in your grace, Lord. For me, it's my word. It's my country. And it's, it's my grace. Supposed to be good to me, Lord. I'm deserving. I'm faithful. But I, I don't want you to extend that kind of grace to others who are truly undeserving. Not, especially not these people, these barbaric sinners, really. Jonah sounds a little bit like the, the, the Pharisees, right? Sounds a little bit like the elder brother who didn't want to see his undeserving brother saved. Remember that the context for that parable was the fact that the, the Pharisees were grumbling that Jesus was receiving sinners. And the Pharisees were people who took a great deal of pride in their culture and in their heritage and in their ethnic identity. We forget what we once were, maybe individually, but maybe also collectively and culturally prior to Christ. You know, not many of us were wise or powerful or noble, but God chose what's weak and low and despised. We need to 
check our nationalistic pride. You know, at, at one time, even the, the English were barbarians, right? Yeah? Still. Still? A little bit? Everyone needs Christ. Every culture needs Christ to be redeemed. Please don't get me wrong. It's okay for Christians to feel like they should export Christian culture. I believe in that. We have a very valuable heritage to export. We just, you know, we just started our kids in the Oaks um, School just this week. And I'm really proud of the education that the school is offering to homeschooling families. We don't, we don't need to be glorying in ignorance. Not a good thing to not know your right hand from your left, right? But I, I, and I pray that we will be able to export the right kind of classical Christian education, that it will truly spread throughout this nation and others as well. But it seems to me that we should be open to the fact that a God appoints nations to rise and nations to fall. Within a generation or two, Israel is going to be taken off into captivity, into exile by Nineveh. That was a foretaste of what, what was to come. Very sad. It's okay to be sad and to grieve. But the inclusion of the nations is always glorious. Even if our culture's in decline, let's not sulk. Let's, let's glory in seeing God save other cultures and other countries. And let's be proactive in promoting truth, beauty, and goodness among the nations rather than sulking over their ignorance. You know, what a difference Jonah might have made if he had not gone outside the city, but actually gone down to the people and taught them God's wonderful law. They were ripe, of course, for that. Instead, he sulked. He sulked because he prized his own cultural preservation over the salvation of other countries. But then also... Jonah sulked because he prized his own comfort over the preservation of another people. Look at, look at what Jonah does beginning in verse 5. It says he uh, first goes out east of the city where he makes a booth. And he sits in its shade waiting to see what God will do to Nineveh. Let's break that down just a little bit. First notice the direction. He goes out east of the city. East always indica indicates a way from the presence of the Lord. Remember that Cain was banished and had to go eastward after he sinned against the Lord. And, and when the Lord gave Israel the pattern for the tabernacle, wasn't it a direction of, of traveling from, from east-westward, right? East-westward in order to come back into paradise, so to speak, come back towards the presence of the Lord. So Jonah is once again traveling away from the presence of the Lord. And east of the city, what does he do? He constructs a booth. What, is, what does that remind you of? Is it called your attention to the Feast of Booth? I think it's meant to. Every year, Israel would keep a festival where for a week they would dwell in these little makeshift tabernacles to remind themselves that God had been gracious to them and provided them shelter as they traveled out of Egypt to the Promised Land. And there are a couple of interesting things about the Feast of Booths. First, unlike Passover, where God said no foreigner may eat of it, the Feast of Booths, that was open to servants and sojourners, really to anyone who was within reach of Israel. And it's certainly not a somber occasion. It's a festival of celebration and, and fellowship. Think fellowship meal at All Saints, right? It's that kind of atmosphere. 
Then also, it was an occasion where they would sacrifice 70 bulls in seven days. The first day of the festival, they'd offer 13 bulls and then 12 bulls the next day, and on down the line until they got to the seventh day where they would offer seven bulls, and you add all that up, and you get 70 bulls. And what does that number 70 correspond to? Well, in Genesis chapter 10, it lists the 70 families descended from the sons of Noah. And the chapter ends by saying, these are the the clans of the sons of Noah. We all come from the sons of Noah, don't we? We all trace lineage back to one of them. But it's it's all, these are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these nations they spread out over the face of the earth. So in a real sense, the Feast of Booths, it was celebrating all of the peoples over the face of the earth. But Jonah built a booth for himself. And he sat by himself, sulking about God, including the nations in his salvation. And so here God decides to teach him a lesson. He appoints a plant, makes a plant grow up to provide some shade for Jonah, it says, to save him from his discomfort. And Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. I mean, the the language there is, is very intentionally exaggerated. But then God appoints a worm to wither the plant, and then he appoints a Sirocco, a desert wind, to blow across along with the sun to bear down upon Jonah and make him uncomfortable. And Jonah is uncomfortable. He's hot. He's hot physically. He's hot emotionally, right? He's very angry, angry enough to die, he says a second time. Notice notice that God appointed all three of those things, the plant, the worm, and then the wind. It says God appointed them three times in order to drive home a point. It's God who makes things grow. It's God who appoints nations to rise and nations to fall. I sincerely believe that the plant represents Israel. God made it grow. But now he's appointed a worm to attack the plant so that it withers. See, God appoints the rise and fall of nations. I, I don't know if Jonah was able to perceive that message embedded in this picture that Israel was destined to wither. Maybe he did. Maybe that's what made him really mad. Or maybe he was just really concerned with his comfort level. In any case, we see how important comfort is to Jonah. Remember, he he was happy to enjoy a ministry of glad tidings to his people while they enjoyed comfort and prosperity, even though they didn't deserve it. Jonah didn't want anything to disturb that kind of status quo. He knew Nineveh's ascendancy would threaten his people's status. God expanding his kingdom made Jonah nervous and made him uncomfortable. You know, it, it is really easy to get uncomfortable in the church. I'm sorry, comfortable in the church today, isn't it? Even here in our church, we can fall into the trap of getting too comfortable. I don't mean that we're not willing to lift a finger. Uh, Just yesterday, I was here uh, working with a bunch of guys from our church. They were were really going at it to fix up some things and make life better for us. You should have seen the crew that was bringing down the the old boiler from the 30s from one of the storage closets. Weighed like over 1,000 pounds, and they made some makeshift thing to bring it down the stairs. It was amazing. We got some wonderful new comforts. We got a a new parking lot. We added some new flooring recently. We've got a new sound and streaming system. Way to go, guys. 
Um, we got that in place so that we wouldn't have to rely upon YouTube or the internet. Direct feed down to the fellowship hall. I hope that's working today. Place some lights. We trimmed some trees yesterday, right? We hope to, to improve the fellowship hall ceiling soon. We got some designs for the lawn and the courtyard. We hope all, all wonderful improvements to our building. And I really do. I want to commend our congregation. This is not empty flattery. We have a ton of servants here who are willing to sweat. If I ask men to come out on a work day, I just get this great response. If, uh, if we have to move tables and chairs in a moment's notice, people don't complain about that. Even when we have little hiccups, right? We have to throw out chairs in the foyer or whatever it is. People are good, good sports. They don't complain when they're made uncomfortable, and that is really an impressive thing. But, you know, I think in the future we're going to be stretched in this regard. We're going to be stretched because God's doing a good thing. You know, you, you know the most comfortable position to be in, don't you, it's, it's status quo. <laughs> Change? <laughs> right? Church growth, like the kind of growth that we read about here, that can threaten our culture and it can also threaten our comforts. And it could make us resentful. We're, we're, we're currently experiencing some amazing growth here at All Saints. You probably know that. But um, we've literally grown 100 members over one year's time. Praise God for that. Thank you, sir. May I have another, right? Bring, keep bringing it. This is wonderful. But that means change. Growth can threaten, number one, our culture. Again, I'm not saying that we just kiss our culture goodbye. I think we should be culture exporters. But anytime you grow, anytime you grow, you meet the challenge of embracing people who have not been part of your tradition. And growth will also threaten our comfort. Maybe we like being a small church. I understand that. Maybe we like being a, a small church where we know everyone, where we can all sit in a room together and share a meal. That's a beautiful thing where we can all worship together in the same place at the same time. Things we all want. But I want to encourage us to embrace what God is doing in expanding his kingdom, even if it threatens our culture or our comforts. We don't, we don't want to become like Jonah who was sulking about culture and comforts. You know, church growth might not be everything, it isn't everything, but it is God's plan. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You know, Jonah went outside the city sulking alone, hoping that God would destroy the Ninevites. That is not God's plan. God's plan is to have pity. God's plan is to save the world even the Ninevites. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? Jonah went outside the city hoping to see the wrath of God poured down upon Nineveh. Jesus went outside the city to bear the scorching wrath of God and to be crucified so that he might gather the nations. Remember what Jesus said. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone but if it dies, 
what? It bears much fruit. So when the Son of Man is lifted up, I will gather all nations to myself. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for what you're doing here at our church at All Saints. We're humbled that you're adding to our numbers and that we're seeing your favor, that we're enjoying new members, new baptisms just about every week. Without presumption, Lord, we look forward to what you will do in the years to come. May you be pleased to continue growing us, not just multiplying our numbers, but our congregations throughout this metro area. And we also pray that you would grant us a vision and a mission outside of ourselves for what you're doing in the world. May we have pity for the nations, the kind of pity that you have. Thank you, Lord, that you are indeed calling the nations to repentance. We glory in the fact that Christianity is growing in amazing places, places we would not expect. Help us to put aside any identity other than the one that's rooted in Christ. May we glory in his global authority and in his name alone as we witness him building his worldwide church. Lord, even as we glory in the church, we do pray for your grace and mercy, your slowness of anger, your relenting from disaster upon our nation. We love our country, and we do love our culture. We don't wish to make them idols, but we feel that we have a wonderful heritage which we would desire to preserve. So we pray that you would grant our people repentance unto life, and do not extinguish our light, we pray, Lord. Hear our prayer. Be gracious to us for the name and sake of Jesus. Amen.